This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Game book illustrations. Packaged foods. Playtesting. And the Trail of Tears. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. As we move down the steps into the paneled basement, uh, around the pool table and past the obsolete video games, we come upon a series of illustrations, Errol Otis's and uh, Rich Longmore's and even perhaps Larry Elmore's. Uh, Robin, would you like to discuss how we can use these illustrations to do more than cover the hideous paneling? <laughs> right. So the history of illustrations in role-playing games is uh, a really interesting mirror of the history of role-playing games themselves as we've moved from a little cottage industry to something that was... Uh, where the illustrations were done by people in the original circle of Gary and Dave and then sort of spread outwards to over a period of, uh, you know, nigh on 40 years now reach an incredible level of sophistication. And we've seen sort of a shift in attitude towards illustrations over those years as well. For example, you used to hear a lot of uh, people who were raised on the original photocopies or the immediate generation after that uh saying that, hey, we, we don't need no stinking art. I would just like, you know, four-point type and tight columns on white space. And uh, there was a real uh, feeling, and sometimes you still get that feeling, that people are outraged by uh, any inch of white space on a game book surface, when, of course, uh, white space is essential to uh, understanding and reading. And you can sort of follow the, the history of the sophistication of the industry by following the sophistication of illustrations. If sometimes in a particular fandom there will be a particularly retrograde series of images that still evokes frustration and anger. Uh, for example, in the uh, RuneQuest community, there's one particular late Avalon Hill RuneQuest book where they assigned the guy who was usually the cartographer to do monster illustrations. And of course, he was out of his depth and they looked amateurish, but the uh, Hatred and shock and fear of those illustrations uh, lives on today in, in people's memories and becomes sort of a folk way to discuss in the pub when you're complaining about things. But, of course, illustrations do have an enormous utility in uh, game books. One of the least recognized ones, I think, is just as a visual mnemonic device to help you remember where in the book a particular uh, rule is, that if you're uh, often in a, a game where you that's complex enough where you have to consult the rules during play, you there will be a, a rule that you only have to look at you know once every four sessions or six sessions or whatever, and you know where it is, and you remember it's by the illustration of the guy with the hat with the gun, or you remember that it's uh, you know past the map or whatever. And just as visual spacers in a book, they have enormous utility in and of, of themselves. Now certainly it goes beyond that into being able to let people imagine visual images from an, uh, 
a fantastical world so that when you have monster illustrations, of course, uh, that is something that you can hold up and show the players. And again, it would be an interesting study that you could do, for example, following the different generations of Dungeons and Dragons as different uh, art styles have come and gone and as different ways of conceptualizing and designing uh, classic monsters uh, come to mind. So, for example, uh, you know, recently we've seen a couple of web pages tackle all sorts of different ways to do owl bears, for example, and that gives you sort of a, a history of the hobby in a nutshell. Yeah, I think that the, um, like illustrations in any context, they serve both as sort of uh, graphic elements, they serve as a sort of memory palaces or triggers for a connection that you have to the particular text, and they also, you know, <laughs> illustrate things. And I think what's what, what may be sort of more interesting than just the fact of the illustration, qua an illustration, something that is a little more unique to our field, even than it is to, I think, uh, maybe any other uh, field except comics, is the degree to which the illustrations have actually really driven the look of something and sort of... Put, you know, uh, nail it down, put it in, put it in stone. In theory, an Umber Hulk could have looked like anything, but now that we've, you know, we saw the the first Umber Hulk illustrations in the Monster Manual, and that's what they look like. It's, you know, the description is is not uh, particularly, um, you know, it's it's not Lovecraft describing an anatomical survey of the of the Elder Things, for example. It's just, you know, it's it's just an Umber Hulk, and the uh, the illustration is what sort of really carries that monster forward. It's not that the not that the creature is particularly inspirational. It's that the image that we have of it that was, was formed, much like the image that we would have of, you know, uh not even Spider Man, but say, you know, the the dread Dormammu or something. When when a superhero gets a new costume, we feel like we're betrayed. And to an extent if if someone draws, you know, a uh, a manticore without wings then those of us who grew up on the manticore with in the monster manual feel like the manticore is broken somehow. Right, and in the editions of D&D, the design aesthetics of the game have been reflected in the illustrations, so that the earlier focus on more of a uh, attempt at a historical fantastical simulation gave you sort of a, a more partly realistic portrayal in uh, first edition D&D, then it got sort of this uh, more beautiful kind of van art uh, look to it that sort of... Uh, both brought in elements of Frazetta, but it had a real 80s spin to it. And then over the years, the depictions of the monsters and the characters have become more and more fanciful and uh, influenced by comics and anime and are the drive towards more of a power fantasy approach can be seen in those illustrations. And I think what you're saying about nailing things down is enormously on point. For example, one case in which the illustrations really crystallized things in people's minds was with my game Ashen Stars, which when it went out to playtesters just as a text document, a lot of people really had difficulty wrapping their minds around what they thought the tone of the setting was supposed to be. And it was only when uh, Jerome Huguenin and Chris Huth uh, created the visual look of the science fiction setting and showed you the creatures and sort of gave a tonal unity visually, did people click into that? And then uh, once the book came out, there was nothing but praise for the setting, and you know, it got some awards and stuff, because 
they were able to see it and that clicked them into what the tone of what they should be doing in play came home to them. So that's a, a really clear example of the look of a game, the design unity, and the particular illustrations themselves having an effect on what happens at the table and how people perceive this new property that has been created for them and imagine themselves in that world. Because, of course, role-playing is essentially a verbal form in which you are attempting to form mental pictures, and it's inevitable that everybody in the room is going to have different mental pictures, and having actual pictures to hold up as sort of a a lock-on structure for people to engage with is, uh, I think, an enormous assist in that regard. Yeah, I think um, sort of along those lines, another thing that I think maybe gets underestimated a bit, maybe it's not underestimated, maybe everyone knows it, but I think that the role of the illustrations in a more contemporary set game, a game where in theory you know what's going on, like um, uh, like Vampire is, the, is, is a great example. The illustrations serve less as sort of what does a vampire look like, because we all pretty much know what a vampire looks like, and a Nosferatu, if you've seen the movie, you know what a Nosferatu looks like. But so many of the illustrations serve as aspirational goals, that this is how the game should feel, is as though the characters who are dressed like this are the characters that are taking part in it. And that sort of adds to the image of sophistication and um, uh, high fashion and, um, you know, club wear and going out at night and disobeying your parents that Vampire really, really pulls. And I think that you could draw an interesting parallel between, say, illustrations for the Vampire line over the years and fashion photography or um, lifestyle magazines to a, to a, in a broader context. But I think fashion photography is, is a good parallel because it has the same aspirational, you know, goal that even if you're not going to buy, you know, the $6,000 suit, you want to buy the suit that's the knockoff of the $6,000 suit because you want to look like, you know, the model did in that um, uh, ad because he was leaning on a sports car and nuzzling Charlize Theron or whatever he was doing. Same thing with a vampire. You, you look at that vampire and you want to play a character. Maybe you think, well, I can't play a character who's as cool as a Tim Bradstreet drawing, but I want to <laughs> at least play the character who's as cool as the knockoff of the Tim Bradstreet drawing, right? Aspiration, I think, is a really interesting thing to grapple with because you were trying to do a couple of things when you present figures in illustrations that are supposed to represent the PCs or possibly represent someone you might want to play or create a sense of excitement around a setting because on one hand, you want to have those images be pictures that players will look at and go, oh, I want to play that guy. I want to be as cool as that uh, vampire in the in the Dior dress or, you know, I want to be as uh, awesome as that uh, dwarf with the giant spiked collar. On the other hand, you also want to portray things in a representative way so that, uh, you know, it's not just a world of glam and you want to represent uh, uh, particularly, I think, the issues of how we uh, present uh, women are uh, really fraught because uh, uh, some women really enjoy those uh, glamorized images, even if they have a big component of sex appeal to them, and other women find those to be aimed at guys and and kind of a turnoff. So, for example, uh, one of the illustrations for one of the series pitches for Hill Folk, I find myself in a bit of a quandary because the original version of the illustration came in and it's like, well, the face isn't quite glamorous enough, but how do I tell the 
illustrator that that is what I'd like without just saying, hey, you know, I'm not saying sex her up, but I am saying make her more of somebody that a player would look at and go, oh, I want to be her. And so, you know, I found myself in this weird situation where all of a sudden I was like, felt like a studio executive telling someone to get a nose job, except the person who was getting a nose job was just like a, a drawing on a, on a digital <laughs> file. Well, I think that there can be a useful distinction drawn uh, as much as Cosmopolitan tries to uh, er erase the distinction between glamorized and sexualized, right? I mean, there's a difference between Maxim magazine and Glamour magazine uh, in terms of what the cover models are doing and wearing or not wearing in some cases. And then so I think you can draw... A, a vampire in a in a Dior gown, and that you know, unless someone is just really on on the prowl for uh, for, for or believes that the femme fatale is a, is an inherently uh, sexist image, and nothing can ever be done with it, in which case they probably should stay away from vampire. Um, but uh, th th you can draw something like that and not have a vampire who's you know contorted in a cat suit like uh, like Catwoman always is on on her uh, comic book covers. And, you know, obviously the, the, uh, the hobby began appealing almost entirely to adolescent boys and, uh, adolescent men <laughs> of various sorts with one or two, uh, incredibly tolerant women, no doubt, uh, involved somehow at sort of the, the opening. But interestingly, the real blow up of, of female involvement in, in role playing in America, at least, obviously Scandinavia and, and other countries have their own history, but in America, it came, really with that glamorized illustration with vampire and a lot i think of its appeal to women is not you know pretty pictures but is pictures of people that looked like the people they were already aspiring to be right that they were already that they were drawing the vampires as cool kids and club goers and fashion models and you know if they were if they were the gangrel or the or the nosferatu they were stylishly uh motorcycle gangs and stylishly sewer crawlers Right, they're they're figures of power rather than rewards for the imagined viewer who gains power and therefore gets the opportunity to uh, get with this sexy hubba hubba drawing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, of course, that's that's not the the only issue involved in uh, commissioning illustrations. You also uh, want to be uh, inclusive of all different uh, types of people, and one thing that you have to watch out for when you're uh, writing uh, art specifications is that if you do not specify the ethnic background of a, a character, you'll almost invariably get that character back as a Caucasian, so you have to make an effort to... And that pretty know, much uh, is true regardless of the ethnic background of the artist. Yeah. I it's find just, at least. You know, however much we want to get away from that, that is, you know, still the default or vanilla choice or whatever it is. And so um, even in fantasy worlds... Uh, you want to write your art descriptions to keep that in mind and say, well, you know, this elf looks kind of Sri Lankan. Um, <laughs> and it's uh, kind of uh, weird on, on that level, but of course it's weird to assume that uh, all elves are uh, Caucasian too. And so, and it's certainly been something that's been being addressed for a long time. And it's something that uh, Wizards was very, very uh, conscious of because they, uh, to some extent, had sort of a... Uh, grad student in English uh, corporate culture in the uh, early 90s or mid-90s. And uh, so they, uh, I think, really made pretty good strides in reminding everybody to uh, be inclusive in that way. Yeah, and uh, obviously White Wolf did their share as well. I remember Exalted, I forget if it was the first or the second edition, but the 
sort of the viewpoint character there, Ragnar, was a, a black female archer who was standing there on the cover shooting you with her uh, with her bow. And so that was sort of a statement that this was much more a, um, a cosmopolitan world, right? It was not just your boring old Northwest European fantasy done again and again and again, that this was going to be taking itself uh, from sort of both the the pre-version of that, the Theosophist legends, and then also from sort of the, the, the postmodern fantasy world that in, involves anime and it involves comics and it involves uh, Bollywood and it involves, uh, you know, Asian action films and everything else that has been sort of poured into the one hopes the ideal postmodern nerd uh, by now. And this was at a time when, for example, the big publishing houses publishing science fiction and fantasy stuff out of New York were still telling people don't have a female lead character, don't have a non-white lead character on the cover, so uh, you know the, the role-playing industry can kind of pat itself on the back on that front. So do you think that there are uh, ways that we have not yet exploited to marry the illustrations to the content of role-playing? I think that there's there's uh, much of our, our, our sort of area... You know, we, we sort of we race ahead in one side and we're catching up in the other. I think, for example, White Wolf literally chasing fashion magazines uh, in terms not only of the illustrations but in terms of the layout is, is an example of that kind of thing. I think that we could look at other genres' visual aids as a goal. I, there are uh, books for these video games that come out and they have um, much more organic connections between the, the visuals and the text than we manage, I think, a lot of times. And there are, uh, similarly, there's a sort of the, the tech books for your various um, uh, anime properties or whatnot that have the, the art serves also as a diagram uh, and, and sort of points up character, uh, you know, reality in that world. And I think you can sort of keep looking at things, especially things out of uh, Japan or out of um, uh, East Asia more broadly, that because they, you know, everyone has been reading comic books there for two generations. When they present information, their presentation of visual and text information is is better linked than it than it often is. Uh, and a lot of times, we just don't have the time uh, when we're developing the books to commission that kind of thing, even if we're thinking of it. Right, and and more so the money, because what you're talking about really is about bringing in artists at the beginning of the process of putting together a new world that you're creating mm -hmm. and having them do concept designs uh, before you uh, go on to write about the game in a role-playing context or design the board game or whatever it is. I know uh, one company that did that and uh, they uh, went out of business. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and so, uh, you know, that sort of suggests the difficulty of, of doing that on a role-playing game uh, budget as opposed to the the budgets of video games, we're talking about it, you know, an order of magnitude more than uh, most role-playing game books. But it would be very exciting to, at some point, get to work on a project where you get people who are really great at, at creature and setting design. And certainly, actually, 13th Age uh, is an example where uh, they have had the artists on board with that right from the get-go. And, and they've uh, had uh, Lee, Lee Moyers and other members of that team uh, helping to shape the feel of the book right from, from the beginning. So that is something that is actually happening. Yeah, and we, you can also point, uh, for example, uh, at Monty Cook, who has taken a real step in terms of uh, not just the illustrations, but also the whole graphic 
uh, process of of Ptolus was, you know, he he had obviously looked at things like Dorling Kindersley tourist guides and says, how do people who are not nerds present a fat lot of information about a city no one's been to? And he figured it out. And so Tolis it has a really good graphic look. And also, of course, he got really good artists to go with it. And then I believe that in Numenera, Kieran Yanner was doing exactly what you were talking about, who was, and he was doing concept art for the, uh, for the books. I, we tried to do a little of that on the Star Trek games, again, with Kieran Yanner, uh, back when he was working for us. And if you look at, uh, my old Starfleet operations manual, I very much wanted to marry the fact that we had all this great Star Trek art to the text. So if you look at the, the fold out of the bridge, it tries to illustrate the bridge or illustrate a tricorder or illustrate these things, given that we had all this pre-existing great art that we could marry to a product. Well, I think that we've uh, at least scratched the surface of the issue of uh, the play utility of uh, art. Uh, you can look at it as something that brings the world into your imagination. You can take a step back from it and see the history of the hobby reflected in the way that art styles have changed, and it will be uh, very exciting in the next decade or so to see where we're headed with it. So if there was one bit of feedback that I got about the podcast while I was in Germany, it was, we want more Food Hut. So here you go. Here's some more Food Hut. This week I thought we would talk about the legends and lore of packaged foods. Packaged foods are something that you don't necessarily associate with foodieism, sort of in a way being a foodie is to keep processed foods at arm's length and to use only fresh ingredients uh, because, of course, you know, Freshly acquired simple ingredients are the basis of great cooking, as far as I'm concerned. But, of course, we live in a world surrounded by processed food. A lot of people only eat processed food, and there's a lot that you can learn about society from the processed foods that we buy. And perhaps later on in this segment, we can imagine what the processed foods of imaginary societies might be. But I started, thought I'd start off by uh, laying a couple of secret origin stories on you, Ken, and see if you have anything comparable so, do you know the secret origin of Cool Whip? I, I do not. Tell me the secret origin of Cool Whip. So, uh, Cool Whip, I don't know how worldwide a brand this is, so if anyone is living in a Cool Whip-free zone of the world, uh, this is a sort of a whipped cream-style dessert <laughs> topping that comes in a tub. It's very sweet and sugary, and it's a staple of uh, white trash North American cooking, or as some people call it, caker cooking. So, uh, you know, if you... Think back to the days of yore, the perfect dessert would be uh, lime or uh, cherry jello with a dollop of Cool Whip on it. Well, it turns out that Cool Whip was originally designed to be almost the complete opposite of a dessert topping fattening North Americans. It was originally developed out of an effort to create a non-perishable milk product that could be shipped to uh, developing countries, particularly uh, as part of emergency aid or as part of ongoing food relief. And now, the only problem is, is that they succeeded in creating something that was a milk product, and they succeeded in creating something that was non-perishable. But what they didn't succeed in doing was producing anything that 
starving people were willing to put in their mouths. <laughs> However, uh, as an offshoot of this process, part of the, you know, in their attempts to make it uh, palatable, they tried whipping it up and filling it full of sugar. And although that, of course, made it completely non-nutritious and unsuitable as a item of food relief, all of a sudden it became the basis of a packaged food product that went on at its height to be a, a seven-figure annual sales in North America. So uh, the next time you uh, spot a, a dollop of Cool Whip at a country fair or at your uh, great aunt's dinner table, you will know that you, you are the fruit of an effort to feed the third world. <laughs> Do you know the, uh, the birth of the Twinkie, Robin? Speaking of uh, things that uh, Chicago has contributed to the world. I was hoping you would be able to tell me about the, the birth of the Twinkie. Uh, the birth of the Twinkie uh, came about in uh, 1930 at the sort of beginning of the great roller coaster ride down into the Depression when a guy who had been making um, cream-filled strawberry shortcakes for uh, the, his baking company realized that you couldn't um, <laughs> make, a, make money in the Depression with a product that you could only sell two or three months out of the year. So he was desperately looking around for anything else that you could fill uh, with cream, and he came up with the notion of taking a sponge cake and filling it with banana cream so that you would have a banana cream pie that uh, you could serve pretty much any time because bananas would just come up on, on the boats from, uh, from Central America, even back in those palmy days. And at, during the war, uh, World War II, uh, obviously the boats were needed for more important things than dragging bananas around. They had to uh, win the war overseas against the Hun, and so they used vanilla cream, which turned out to be way better than banana cream. And that is how the Twinkie sort of came into its fullness of being, is a sort of uh, <laughs> a double tap between the Depression and World War II, giving us uh, the, the wonderful and magical Twinkie. Another fun product origin story is the origin of Gatorade. And unlike Cool Whip, where it was developed accidentally, this was developed through a very intentional process of figuring out what nutrients the body gave off during exercise in order to create a product that could quickly replenish them. And so what they did in order to figure out what should go in the original Gatorade was they uh, got the uh, University of Florida uh, football team, hence the term Gator, to uh, exercise in heavy, heavy sweatsuits in the hottest weather of the year. And so they had them working out in the field until literally their tracksuits were drenched with sweat, and then they relieved them of these tracksuits, wrung them out into buckets, and then chemically analyzed their sweat in order to determine what would go in Gatorade to be something that they could market as a healthy, sugary, uh, processed drink for athletes. And uh, the further irony of, of this is that it turns out much later that uh, if you have been exercising and need to quickly replenish all of your lost nutrients, uh, you do not necessarily have to go to a beverage with a color that does not appear in nature and has a weird taste. You can drink a glass of milk instead. Yes, or you can um, uh, just uh, drink water and eat a salt tablet, which is what pretty much everyone was doing until Gatorade came along. Uh, and is, of course, this what you still do if, you're, you know, if your life depends on it as opposed to 10 yards uh, the next down. Right. But both of those, both the salt tablet and the milk lack the narrative that is part of any processed food because processed foods are not just foods. They're uh, 
products that are put forward to us by marketing. And so if you uh, look at the way that all of these packaged goods and like packaged goods like that aren't foods like toothpaste and so forth are invented and sold and you see how they arrive in the marketplace and how, for example, the first thing to fill a niche in uh, whatever market it is, is often the one that hangs on for decades and decades. And we have a sort of a similar thing in role-playing where the first role-playing game in any given category that really nails that category goes on to become a perennial favorite that is very difficult to dislodge. Um, and, you know, to step outside of food but remain with the marketing metaphor, for example, of all the major brands, uh, w the only one that ever got displaced was where uh, the time when Colgate toothpaste was displaced by Crest toothpaste because they had a good enough narrative to convince people to switch, which was that at the time that was the one that had the healthier ingredient that would uh, reduce tooth decay. And, of course, Colgate had to sprint to catch up. Now, these days... They're essentially equal in terms of their teeth cleaning benefits, but uh, Crest had enough of a head start for long enough to come up from second and displace them. Yeah, you do occasionally get a second place that moves into, depending on how you count it, parity. Obviously, Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola. Uh, Pepsi-Cola began as nothing, while Coca-Cola was a national brand by 1896. And uh, Pepsi is now, depending on how you parse it, at least you know, at rough parity with Coca-Cola. So it's not impossible that it happens, just as it's not impossible that uh, you can get another sort of role-playing game in a given space that, that knocks something out of its out of its niche. And what those uh, products do, or what beers do, for example, is that they give you a story about themselves. So if, you know, if you're the guy who wants to relate to the overdog, you may be a Coke guy. If you just want to be slightly ever so different than the... Uh, then the next guy, you, you go for Pepsi. Now, of course, people do have taste preferences and so forth, but the ad campaigns, if you look at them, even today, the Coke ad campaigns are giving you a narrative of cultural supremacy and they're being number one, and Pepsi always has to come at it from a different angle. Perhaps the best and most fraught narrative originally connected to a processed food, though, would be Kellogg's cornflakes. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about the crazy history of cornflakes. Um, well, uh, cornflakes come out of the birth of the American health food movement, uh, which was a movement that was intimately tied up with the birth of American socialism and communes. And as you can see, the uh, cornflakes are pretty much the only thing that stuck around. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> All of these people, and not just cornflakes, but also graham crackers and uh, other foods, were created, again, as a rebellion against the, at the time, seen as unnatural sort of ingredients that you might get by going to your uh, your local general store, because God knows how long it had sat on the shelf, and everything was, was, was weird and strange and unknown. And you, as a person who would withdraw from society and go off into nature... Would not would not want the uh, same food that that all of your your sheep like uh, uh, fellow citizens would eat. You would have to eat something that was milled from pure natural goodness, and that would be a graham cracker or that would be a cornflake. And basically, uh, the first batch of guys who did cornflakes were uh, Seventh Day Adventists who wanted to <laughs> keep with a tenet of vegetarianism that I don't think is part of um, uh, Seventh Day Adventism, and then sort of fad vegetarianism kept driving the creation of ever more sophisticated versions of 
various kinds of milled grain in various kinds of food, cornflakes being delicious, they stuck around. But uh, uh, a guy named John Harvey Kellogg, who we all recognize as the spiritual father of Tony the Tiger. So Kellogg uh, was a Seventh-day Adventist and a vegetarian. He ran a uh, sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, and believed in a strict vegetarian health diet for everyone. No alcohol, no caffeine, no poisons, no toxins. Everything would have to be bland, because spicy foods and sweet foods would also uh, get you all head up and prevent uh, the sort of uh, meditative healing that he was trying to encourage. And uh, he basically was operating a sanitarium on a budget. He was uh, trying to make uh, crackers, uh, like his spiritual mentor, Sylvester Graham, had, and managed to screw it up, and the resulting little squares of milled wheat uh, turned out you could pour milk on them and toast them, and they would be okay. And that's how he sort of invented uh, wheat flakes and then corn flakes, because corn was cheaper than wheat even back in uh, in those days. So if we want to extrapolate this thought that there are these products all around us that uh, are telling us stories about ourselves... Uh, that we are then uh, purchasing. And certainly today, uh, buying a box of Kellogg's cornflakes tells you something different than if you're going down to the health food store to get something out of their bulk bin. Uh, you know, we've had a huge shift in, in historical irony in that way. But it is something that you can do to uh, anything that sort of springs out of our present day, a near future setting or a futuristic setting. Uh, some we sort of tend not to think of consumer capitalism as surviving into uh, space opera eras. Uh, certainly, there's nothing like that in Star Trek. They just have their uh, replicators, and they never uh, dial up a uh, a Magnum ice cream bar or a, a jar of Kraft peanut butter. But uh, certainly, you could look at ways to make those an interesting little detail. The most obvious thing to do is to make your packaged goods sinister and the result of some sort of uh, monstrous conspiracy that you then have to investigate a la uh, the Larry Cohen movie, The Stuff. Uh, but there could be more subtle ways that you could say things about what is important to your futuristic or near future setting by just simply describing the manufactured foods that people eat. Yeah, in uh, GURPS Infinite Worlds, I mention a product called Mango Spread with two Ds. Uh, to indicate that it probably didn't have a lot of spreadability to it, but that it was a really popular uh, packaged food on a parallel timeline that, that Infinity Incorporated, or rather Infinity Unlimited, had uh, uh, basically ripped off from the parallel timeline and brought over to the home timeline. And it was just one sort of example of a what, what I like to call um, sort of a Tim Powers detail, where you take two or three things that evoke a much larger truth, and then you never mention the larger truth. You just mention the details and let the uh, the readers or the gamers' imaginations go. So if you want to give an, uh, an impression, like you say, of a, of a future that is full of packaged foods, you know, mention one or two of them in the in the text or in the flavor text, and people's minds will sort of conjure up the whole, you know, orbital supermarket full of delicious uh, tang and um, uh, astronaut food the way that uh, we imagined it back in the 60s when we were drinking our tang and eating our astronaut bars. Uh, well, all of this uh, talk of processed food uh, makes me want to uh, go off and uh, get some lettuce and have some uh, a nice balsamic vinegar salad. How about you? Actually, I'm really, really uh, craving a Twinkie now because I talked about it. <laughs> 
Well, we have another half a podcast to do, and then we can have our respective tasty foods. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Conrad Kinch asks Ken and Robin, what does one look for in a good playtester, and how does one guide a so-so playtester to greatness? Michael Kuehl adds, in his trademark uh, backhanded fashion, <laughs> since I suspect that Robin may have regarded my input on Hero Wars as it was then, as of the not-so-useful sort, if he even remembers it, are there any bits of playtesting advice you've decided to ignore, and then later wished you hadn't? Maybe piece of advice from Michael Kuehl? <laughs> <laughs> and since this is obviously not aimed at me, Robin, are there any pieces of Michael Kiel's advice that you even remember, much less that you regret having ignored? I remember Michael Kiel's advice very well, actually. Um, and uh, let, let me turn this around and suggest, uh, uh, I, I don't know if it's possible, as Conrad asked, to uh, guide a so-so playtester to greatness because you are just basically reliant on the kindness of strangers and anyone who will play your game and give you feedback about what actually happened in your game uh, is super valuable no matter uh, what their tastes are and basically that's uh, but if I could use this podcast segment to guide all of you potential uh, playtesters to uh, playtesting fame and glory I would say that to, to, to keep that in mind that really as a game designer what your game designer is looking for is practical information about what happened in play as a result of their rule structures. And playtesters are volunteering, and often you see in their volunteering a desire to shape the project. And what you, uh, I think, have to understand in order not to be frustrated uh, is to understand that you are not going to completely change the design parameters of the game by the time you're on board as a playtester, that you're going to help make the implementation of whatever those design goals are more effective and stamp out uh, errors and make sure that everything fits those design goals. And often uh, anybody's rule set is going to have a bunch of rule structures that sort of got away from them and, and no longer reflect the original uh, design objectives. But you're going to have a difficult time arguing the designer out of the objectives that they and the publisher have already decided on and already put months and months of work into, that you are not a focus group giving your opinion about your personal taste, which of course is what nearly everyone wants to be, but you are uh, someone basically giving a report on what worked and what didn't. And uh, if you as a playtester want to maximize your effect on the process, the more emotion that you can drain out of your presentation, the more uh, Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, you can be about, well, we didn't uh, uh, have very much success with, with this subsystem. It kind of fell apart. The, uh, we thought the characters were supposed to be uh, resistant to damage, but they fell really easily, or whatever the example is. Practical examples of the things that happen in play are the first, third, fourth, and last thing that uh, playtest coordinators and game designers are looking for. And the bit of advice that Michael Kuehl refers to is one that at first uh, he was uh, so vehemently uh, unhappy with the uh, design parameters uh, and expressed it at such length that my initial response was, 
is, is Michael all right? Is, is he okay? And then, and then I remembered, it's Michael. He's an actor. He's, part of his job is to have ready access to his emotions. But of, of course, that is something that did not wind up inspiring me to junk everything I'd done for months and months and, and, and gone back to it. And to, to answer his other question, uh, due to my policy of not being wrong, I've uh, never, in fact, ignored a great piece of playtest advice as framed earlier as someone saying, oh, well, this thing didn't work for us, and then wish that I had, because those comments, the, the ones that you're really looking for, that this worked, this didn't, not I liked this or I didn't like this, but these are the problems we had, uh, are the ones that the game designer or adventure designer is anxiously looking for and will uh, act on uh, with uh, relish and abandon. Yeah, I find in my own experience that I have made changes to the games as they develop, but normally if the playtester had indicated a problem with it, it is a problem that I had seen coming and couldn't change in the main text, either because it would add an unsavory level of complexity to the main text, or because other sort of dependent systems required that one part of the of the of the rules to be, you know, at least in any practical amount of time for design, suboptimal. And I think that uh, the classic example that I am dealing with going forward is people talking uh, when they play tested Knights Black Agents. They expected, uh, I think, more dramatic results from gumshoe combat than standard gumshoe combat has, which is only fair given the genre that they're modeling. And lots and lots and lots of people on the playtest, who were mostly very nice, said, um, we had combats and we really were sad when we would roll a six and it wouldn't do anything. Right? They've been, you know, jazzed up to expect that, that rolling a six is going to mean, you know, uh, more damage or a more special event. Right. And in Gumshoe, there's no sort of blow the top off rules because it's a much more uh, sort of linear uh, result curve. Right. But as a result of that feedback, I couldn't insert exploding dice into Gumshoe because that would have broken the whole system uh, completely. But what I can do and have been doing is come up with other neat things that can happen as a reward for rolling a six. And I put a couple of them into the core book on things like disarms and other things like that. If you uh, look at my uh, martial arts Zoom for Gumshoe that I just released uh, as part of the Ken Writes About Stuff series, there every martial arts uh, style in there has a cherry that activates if you roll a six while using it. And so I've tried to provide people who wanted to see something neat happen on a six with things that were neat that could happen on a six without hopelessly overcomplicating the basic game or worse yet, uh, actually breaking gumshoe by introducing exploding dice. Right, because every um, comment on something that could be changed in a rule set, you sort of have to, as a designer, assign a priority level to them uh, between this is something that breaks the game and uh, does fails to achieve the design goals, and this is something that would just be kind of nice. And the things that might be kind of nice are the things that you know, naturally fall by the wayside, especially if they incur other trade-offs, because every change that you introduce to a rule set or every rule that you introduce while you're designing a rule set has trade-offs associated with it. The trade-off might be, you know, complexity uh, versus uh, realism. It might be emulating this particular genre versus maintaining 
continuity with other iterations of the same uh, basic rules in other games. Uh, it might be, you know, learning curve versus awesomeness. There's all kinds of different trade-offs that you have to consider. And uh, when you have an experience that you, as a playtester, want to tweak in one direction or another, of course it's the desire of the people getting your playtest feedback to have you tell them that, but it's sometimes the trade-offs of implementing what in and of itself seems like a great idea are too great. And the other thing that I would say to playtesters who wish to be uh, guided to greatness, i.e. have greater impact on the creative process, is that almost invariably when anyone suggests a specific fix for a problem that they have encountered in play, that fix doesn't work. Um, it's usually too complicated, but there may be other trade-offs that it invokes as well. But because as the designer, I'm the one who knows all, how all the moving parts go together, uh, I, if you just tell me what the problem is, I can probably come up with a, a simpler fix with fewer trade-offs that doesn't reverberate through the, the rules manuscript in other ways. The other thing I would say to playtesters who wish to be guided to greatness is playtest the rules that you are presented with, because uh, one of the things that uh, makes me bonk my head on my monitor in frustration is when I get a set of playtest feedback back where they said, well, we didn't really like the uh, the way that the uh, experience system worked, so we did this instead. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> yeah, I, I, I enjoyed... Um, all the Bookhounds of London playtests were fairly good. The Knights of Black Agents playtest is one of the best I've ever been involved in. All the playtesters were were either guided to or guiding themselves to greatness. It was almost not a bad one in the batch. It, Bookhounds of London was a little hinkier, and I got a lot of pushback on the auction mechanics. And so in, insofar as I got players saying, we didn't think the auction mechanics were, would work, so we didn't use them. And it's like, <laughs> well, then in what sense were you playtesting, uh, playtester, right. who shall remain nameless, but whose input I remember... <laughs> But it wasn't Michael Kuehl. I should hesitate in case anyone is going to accuse him. I don't rip, remember him playtesting bookhounds at all, So, I'm, and I'm sure he would have been lovely. But the, I think that my thing that I would request a playtester to do who wants to be a, a really uh, beloved playtester is provide detailed sort of, uh, you know, almost at, at tiresome length war stories of how the mechanic played out, right? And, and not just... We did this, and it didn't seem to fit what we were expecting, but also we did this, and it worked even better. Because, I, again, in the Knights Black Agents playtest, I got lots and lots and lots of feedback saying, we love the chase rules, they were awesome. Which, on the one hand, is good to hear, but I really would have liked two or three people to say, here's what was specifically awesome about them. Here's the awesome thing we did with them. Here's the awesome way that this informed and expanded play, because... While, while it's very difficult to go back and tear out a mechanic and put in a new mechanic without breaking the whole rest of the game, it's not that hard to go to a specific aspect of the game and at the very least point it up in the text saying, you know, you should really try this. If, if you look at Knights Black Agents, we've got a lot of little uh, box outs where playtesters uh, said things like, you know, this is such an awesome, you know, maneuver, you should take it all the time or things like that. If I can get more of that information, then I can make the game better for other players who may not stumble on that terrific use of the of the chase rules. Right, and often the things that I wind up introducing as a result of playtest, in addition to particular fixes to rules, are 
those sorts of sidebars that sort of explain the thinking behind the rules and help sort of prepare a set of expectations for people so that their expectations are not then thwarted. Because uh, often, you know, uh, they'll run into something that they didn't quite like, but I will be able to find a way with just, you know, a brief bit of information to sort of get them on the right page uh, from the get-go. And so that some of the issues that come up in playtest don't come up when the book comes out because there's explanatory material to, you know, sort of exegesis to help people tune in to whatever it is that the rules are doing. And the same thing is true if, if it didn't work for you. If you explain why it didn't work for you, sometimes it might be that I just wrote the rule badly, that I need to sort of re-explain the rule, put, a, put an example in, you know, add some numbers to it so that people look at it and they don't do this one thing that is a valid reading of the text as written, but is not actually what I intended to put down in the in the manuscript. And that kind of error trapping, you know, obviously for Robin it never happens, but for me it happens every now and again that I will uh, put out a me mechanic that I know in my head works just fine, but apparently I have not yet gotten to the point where other people can read it out of my uh, out of my head merely because of the text. It's also an issue in particular with adventure design, where often a sort of a an offhand comment can activate a whole series of assumptions about what's the GM is supposed to do that completely derail mm -hmm. uh, the intent of the adventure. And so those those are the, the ones that you uh, really want to look out for in uh, adventure playtesting. Well, I think um, we are, as you have hinted before, moving into a second topic, uh, adventure playtesting and how to do it. So maybe it is the time to uh, close the file on the playtest dossier. Oscillating of chronotons and the clanking of time gears tells us that we are once again in the proximity of Ken's time machine, in which the shadowy forces of Time Incorporated send Ken back into history to alter, adjust, and blandish it. And in this case, uh, they would like you, Ken, to see what you can do to avert the uh, historical tragedy known as the Trail of Tears. So uh, to kick things off, could you give our listeners a sense of the history that you are going to attempt to alter? Okay, the Trail of Tears uh, refers specifically to the forced removal of the Cherokees from southeastern United States and in general has been uh, used to describe the forced removal of the other uh, four civilized tribes, the Creek, Seminole, Chickasaw, Choctaw uh, nations. And what does civilized tribes mean in this context? A civilized tribe in the parlance of the day, and including their own parlance, is a tribe that had settled down to become farmers. They had uh, engaged in trade links with uh, white civilization. They had courts. They had uh, uh, organized methodologies by which grievances could be settled between themselves and their neighbors. And in the case of the five civilized tribes in uh, the southeast, they had slaves and were part of the slave economy in the American Deep South. So the uh, the civilized uh, component being that they at least could potentially be brought into a European-style state system with property and laws and judges, as opposed to a uh, parastate or 
uh, ambiguous state system, a tribal system, such as obtained to a greater extent in the Northwest Territory. Right. So, so if you wanted these folks to assimilate, these are the people who had done it. Right, exactly. These were the assimilating Indians. And that was, in fact, the goal of uh, George Washington and uh, Benjamin Knox, his, uh, or Henry Knox, rather, his uh, initial sort of Indian commissioner. And the, the goal was that they would eventually, you know, you would, the government would guarantee them a certain amount of land. They would settle down on that land. They would basically start farming and start trading with whites and the superior industry, technology, and culture of the whites would basically assimilate the Indians into uh, basically indistinguishable Americans. And the problems with that were twofold. First, white racists didn't want to let that happen because they didn't see any reason the Indians should keep any land. And B, Indians didn't want that to happen because they didn't see why they should have to give up their traditional uh, ways that did not so much involve sitting around and growing food as they did, uh, you know, moving around in a larger uh, swath of territory and in some cases predating on other Indians, in some cases predating on their white neighbors, and in general have the same sort of traditional lifestyle that, say, the Shawnee uh, never really got away from in Kentucky. And so between those two tensions, it became very, very hard to keep uh, the civilized tribes uh, on a relatively straightforward basis with their neighbors. The Creeks uh, famously tried to uh, fight Andrew Jackson during the War of 1812 and lost pretty handily. Um, the, the Cherokees uh, allied with Andrew Jackson against the Creeks, for example, is the, the sort of geopolitics that's going on down there. But over the course of the... Uh, between the War of 1812 and uh, 1840, say it became more and more apparent to pretty much everyone that there were a lot of social pressures that were going to put immense strains on the assimilationist model, if it could be done at all. And amongst those strains were basically white settler encroachment wanting the land, uh, not least because slavery turns out to be a really great way to exhaust your land, and so the slave economy needed to expand into fresh uh, soil, and the Indians at that point sat on pretty much uh, big chunks of that fresh, potentially uh, cotton-growing soil. Right, so they, they were committing the crime of being Indian on really attractive land. Yeah, not all the land was super attractive, although uh, Cherokee lands got more attractive when someone discovered gold on it in 1829. The state of Georgia actually passed a law against Cherokees mining gold because they didn't want to confuse the issue of gold claims uh, <laughs> that way. Uh, the state of Georgia at this point was... Uh, eager to uh, demonstrate that the federal government didn't have any power over the state of Georgia. The, the federal actions going back to George Washington to protect the Indians, to uh, keep their lands uh, intact, give them federal land claims, were basically being overruled by the states constantly. Uh, the Georgia was the worst of them because they, they had more Indians on better land, basically, than South Carolina, North Carolina are all braggy about how they were nicer to their Indians, but their Indians were on much more marginal land and sat astride fairly important trade routes and were able to uh, create trading links with white settlers who did not necessarily want to live there, but they just wanted to go through there and, and make some money on the other side of the mountains. But in the case of Georgia, the crime was all too tempting. It was, it was all too tempting. And as a result, uh, there was a series of um, uh, almost a civil war within the Cherokee Nation uh, about whether or not to 
um, leave Georgia and move to Arkansas just on their own hook, and a lot of them did, as similarly a number of Creeks did that. And the, the another civil war, whether to continue to assimilate, continue to adapt um, uh, the, the, the American law codes and things like this, or to really go back to the, to the ways of the Cherokees uh, during the American Revolution, when they were much more of a tribally-based society and less of an economically uh, uh, Western society. And into that uh, political struggle comes, of course, rich Georgia guys who are capable of bribing the side that is in favor of assimilating anyway to sign a bunch of treaties that establish um, uh, their land as uh, as open to white settlement. Funny how efforts to grab gold and uh, wealth are always well funded. <laughs> yes, it's almost as though there was money in it. Um, the uh, so the the state of Georgia basically continues to um, press the 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 Cherokee. They uh, continue to send settlers in. The Cherokees protest. Uh, the uh, the other half of the Cherokees protest, or rather the other third of the Cherokees protest. They take the case to the Supreme Court. They lose once, and then they win. Uh, later, in uh, the case of Worcester versus Georgia, in which the Supreme Court says that Georgia could not impose its laws in Cherokee territory, since Cherokee territory owed allegiance only to the national government, not to the state government, uh, to which Andrew Jackson famously responded, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Uh, Andrew Jackson at that time was dealing with South Carolina's threat to secede over uh, trade tariffs and didn't want yet another uh, sectional crisis going off at the same time. Also, Andrew Jackson famously uh, had not a lot of patience for southeastern Indians, having fought, as I mentioned previously, the Creek, and uh, at the time was, uh, uh, at the very least, involved in uh, the U.S. Army's uh, uh, war against the Seminoles in Florida. So he... He had gone into Florida, of course, in 1819 and stolen it from the Spanish in the first place and was familiar with the Seminoles from, from that as well. So Jackson basically refused to enforce the Supreme Court ruling, which cleared the way for uh, a treaty called the Treaty of New Echota, uh, in which the treaty Cherokees agreed to sell out all their land in Georgia and move to Oklahoma and Arkansas in exchange for about $5 million dollars and uh, settlement uh, allowances and, and the land in those territories. But the Treaty of New Echota only passed by one vote in the Senate because the other faction of uh, Cherokee sent a petition signed by 15,000 people to the Senate demonstrating that the Treaty of New Echota was not passed by a representative body of the Cherokee people since there were, you know, 15,000 people was a huge majority of the voting population of the Cherokee Nation. Because people don't generally volunteer for internal exile. Some do. I mean, as I mentioned, there were Cherokees who sort of saw the writing on the wall and had volunteered for internal exile back in 1815 or so. And what are called the old Cherokees in Oklahoma, the people who came out well before the Relocation Act because they wanted to... Um, they they wanted not to be chivied on their way by a bunch of uh, federal soldiers. They wanted to be able to go and get the good land in Oklahoma first, which is our Oklahoma tradition, certainly. Uh, so anyway, the upshot was that uh, the Treaty of New Echota passed. The uh, President Van Buren, uh, by now Jackson was no longer president, sent uh, the U.S. Army and they escorted, uh, as it were, or um, ethnically cleansed, depending on which verb you prefer, uh, the Cherokee Nation, uh, pretty much all of it in Georgia, the ones in North Carolina, 
were, were living on land that was property of a fairly influential white planter. And so he just said, no one's taking anyone off my land. And that being North Carolina, they said, well, that makes sense. So the, um, uh, so the, the, what's called the Eastern Band Cherokee are still there in the Carolinas because of basically that guy. Uh, but the, um, uh, about 13,000, give or take, Cherokees got rounded up and taken, uh, out to Oklahoma along that way. It, obviously, no one knows specifically how many of them died. About 2,000 of their slaves, uh, were dragged along with them, were the guys who really, as far as I'm concerned, get it in the neck in this deal. Uh, but the, um, but, but some fairly significant number of them died. The, the sort of the low estimate is about 2,000, and the higher estimates are, you know, probably about double that. Uh, the Cherokees themselves then fought another civil war once they got to Oklahoma and assassinated pretty much everyone who'd signed the Treaty of New Echota, um, which I guess satisfied them in the short run. But it then caused the Cherokee Nation to not really talk about the Trail of Tears. It doesn't appear in Cherokee works of history or Cherokee works of literature until the 1970s when sort of the American... Indian nationalist movement is is getting up to steam and people are saying, oh, right, we were really royally screwed. So that is the basis of the Trail of Tears. Like I say, the same uh, basic policy was, was done to the Creeks, to the Chickasaws, and to the Choctaws. The Seminoles managed to fight a war against the uh, United States Army for about 15 years, uh, and some of the Seminoles got captured and were taken off to uh, Oklahoma, but a lot of the others just sort of hid out in the Everglades and dared the army to come after them. The Seminoles in the Everglades, uh, for example, say that they have uh, never relinquished their sovereignty because they were never forced to sign a treaty. Uh, but a chunk of the Seminoles were taken to what is now Seminole County, Oklahoma. And that's the Trail of Tears, basically. So this is a, a broad, historical, sweeping story about uh people who are more powerful than other people who have land that they want. Uh, how do you uh, make this uh, less terrible with your time machine? Um, I think that there is a couple of possibilities, but none of them are particularly good. Uh, Robert Remini, the biographer of Andrew Jackson, has pointed out that there were four realistic possibilities open to Andrew Jackson. The first was genocidally exterminate the southeastern Indians, and of which he says Jackson never thought about doing. I beg to differ, but... Um, he certainly didn't do it, so that's good. The second was to simply allow the, uh, the the states to overwhelm the Indians and look the other way and do nothing, which he also didn't do. Uh, the third would be to try and send the army in to protect the Cherokees, which would have caused the Civil War early over something that no one involved wanted to fight over and would also have created a sectional... Um, uh, resentments uh, all across uh, the country, not just in the South, because obviously Minnesota was at that time clearing out uh, its Indians. Uh, Illinois was clearing out the Sac and Fox. There was, uh, there was a lot of Indian removal uh, questions. The, the Mohawks were being uh, annexed by New York uh, right around this same period of time, uh, the Iroquois. There are a whole lot of people and a whole lot of really great land. Yeah, it turns out uh, that North America is awesome. And uh, so there, it, would, it would not have been as clean a civil war, even if the, to the extent that you could have gotten a federal majority to support it, which, of course, you couldn't. And also to the extent that it would have been militarily possible, which, again, it wouldn't. The, there was not enough men in the army if they'd, you know, if they'd tried. They could have sent the whole army down and they couldn't have protected just the Cherokee, much less 
the other five tribes. And the fourth policy was the one that Jackson actually uh, followed, which was internal removal. And um, you can certainly say it was a it was a human rights uh, crime. It was a, a grotesque blot on the escutcheon of the United States. But you also have to sort of say it was pretty much the best option open to Andrew Jackson, which, as it turns out, it was. So the thing you, I think, have to do is if you're trying to mitigate the impact of the, of the Trail of Tears, you have two possibilities. One, you do what uh, the author Eric Flint did in his Rivers of War series and postulate a much larger, more voluntary emigration of the Cherokees to Arkansas and Oklahoma. Uh, the notion being that uh, Sam Houston, wounded at Horseshoe Bend, uh, spends much time with the Indians, as indeed he did, and becomes sort of their uh, speaker to white guys and negotiates the deal by which they can exfiltrate themselves from the southeast and voluntarily go to Oklahoma and Arkansas. The trouble with that is I don't think that it could have happened because the Cherokee had no greater interest in going to Oklahoma en masse than anyone ever has, except for Irishmen, <laughs> when the free land was being given out. Um, the, uh, I mean, I, it, it's, a, it's an enjoyable book, but again, I don't think that it uh, necessarily is the... It hinges on people's willingness to go to Oklahoma. Yes, it, it, which is, which is uh, iffy. I think that if you're looking for a situation that is at least a, a more moral way of being extirpated, which is really what you're looking at here, the trick is to go back to about 1720 or so and teach the, the Cherokee uh, shamans and medicine men about inoculation of smallpox. Uh, it's not until the 1730s that the Cherokee Nation is basically cut in half by smallpox. Up until then, it's really the, the guys who are holding the balance of power in Georgia and South Carolina uh, with uh, capable of intervening in wars as far away as Virginia and Kentucky. And if you simply inoculate the Cherokees so that they don't have the demographic weakness that other Native American tribes did, it becomes much harder to muscle them off their land if there are two, three, five times as many warriors there. Now, what that means is that if you do that and then lobby the Senate with my power of uh, rum punch to vote uh, down the Treaty of New Echota, what happens is, by default, you get that second alternative of basically anarchy, in which Jackson is not going to send the army down to uh, protect the Cherokee, but nor is he going to send the army down to remove them because he doesn't have a le any legal basis to do it. Now, that wouldn't have necessarily stopped Andrew Jackson, but he was a busy guy, and if he could be assured on the DL that uh, the governor of Georgia, who was, I think, related by marriage to either a Creek Indian or a Cherokee Indian, I, this is all really half sort of Southern Gothic family feud and half war crime, uh, the whole Trail of Tears uh, Indian removal circumstance. But I think that you, it, with a much bigger Cherokee population base and a lack of a clear legal means by which to do it, and keep in mind, this is right at the beginning of Northern, Northeastern American sympathy for the American Indian, because their Indians were all exterminated a hundred years ago, and this is when uh, Fenimore Cooper is writing The Last of the Mohicans and causing that first birth of uh, sympathy for the American Indian in people who, uh, by an odd coincidence, don't have to worry about American Indians next door to them. You can possibly develop a American Indian rights movement early on, and which again can be just funded the way that uh, the Secret Six, for example, 
uh, funded uh, the abolition movement uh, and encourage a general set of opinion, at least somewhere in America, that while no one needs to send the army over it, it, it doesn't hurt every now and again to uh, run some guns down to uh, New Echota and mess with the ignorant uh, southern rednecks. Because, again, you might as well use uh, sectional feeling to accomplish something in this case. Which means that if you play your cards right and with enough uh, temporal intervention and showing up uh, with, uh, you know, prophecies from the past, uh, the words of, 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 of great leaders like uh, Dragon Canoe or Walking Turtle, uh, which, of course, is Child's Play to Time Machine guy, uh, I can uh, encourage a Cherokee resistance that can last until the Civil War. And again, you have to sort of hope for a perfect threading of the needle in that the Cherokees pick the right side. Because, of course, historically, the, all the five civilized tribes fought on the side of the Confederacy, as, as did the Eastern Band Cherokees in North Carolina, who are pretty much the only guys in North Carolina, in that part of North Carolina, fighting for the Confederacy instead of for the Union. Because, again... It's the small farmer who wants to expand his landholding, who is both the enemy of the Cherokees and the enemy of the big slave plantations. So you wind up with a fairly, you know, again, it's not quite the uh, sort of good guys and bad guys uh, feature that, you, that one would like it to be uh, in the Civil War. But if you can, if, if one can have manipulated circumstances within the Cherokee Nation such that they believe that they've had northern abolitionist allies for the last 20 years, maybe that causes them to declare for the Union and say, you know, Georgia seceded, but we've never been part of Georgia. That's what this whole war is about. Like I say, the Seminoles held out for 15 or 25 years, and there was only like 600 of them, and they were down there in the swamps uh, evading easily uh, three and four and five times their number of U.S. federal soldiers with a Cherokee not decimated by or worse than decimated, not halved by smallpox, capable of fighting a guerrilla war up there in the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Smoky Mountains, then they might be able to exist, keep a tribe, a nation in being, until General Sherman marches through and uses them all as uh, scouts and assistants. And again, it should not be impossible to get a free state of Cherokee carved out of the upper Georgia hill country as punishment for being a bunch of secessionist rebels. So this uh, is your first time machine solution that uh, is accomplished through a uh, public health measure. Uh, well, it, I, I resent that on behalf of the makers of gin and tonic. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not saying that gin and tonic <laughs> I mean, didn't feature in, but... Uh, preventing malaria is a public health measure, my friend, and that's what gin and tonics do. <laughs> well, okay. I, I, I will accept uh, that amendment, uh, but... A mass public health measure. Yes, exactly. Um, well, I... Uh, it's interesting that this story doesn't have more play in popular culture because it is so vivid and so interesting, but that is probably why, because there are, are so many sides to it and there are, uh, you know, shades of gray that if you want to depict the uh, suffering of the Cherokee as their uh, send into forced exile, you also have to depict the suffering of their slaves. And it's, uh, you, as you point out, there's a sort of Southern Gothic, uh, family politics underlying everything, and I guess it makes it too complicated a story to mythologize easily. Well, it is it is very hard, I think, for uh, the sort of um, uh, Schlesingerian liberal consensus historian to mythologize guys who fought for the Confederacy. Uh, the mythologizing of guys who fought for the Confederacy is usually the job of angry white guys in the South who are also 
not going to mythologize <laughs> the guys that, that their that their granddad drove out of Georgia. So I think that you know the two great uh, myth makers in American historiography both have their own reasons to sort of ignore the Cherokee and to ignore the Trail of Tears in general. And as I mentioned, the Cherokee themselves didn't really respond to it in a historiographic or even a, a poetic way until the 1970s. And that is, I, I guess it would sort of surprise us to think about it, given you know that I'm an Irishman and Irish will literally write a agonized ballad about losing a fist fight in the bar last week, much less everything the hated British have done to us since the time of Strongbow. Well, there are two kinds of atrocities, the, the kinds that uh, the cultures who suffer them uh, decide to uh, wield as a, a part of their uh, identity and uh, the ones that people want to suppress as uh, being uh, shameful as a story of loss. Yeah. And I, I, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the components that makes it is because there was so much bad blood and family, brother against brother, people who were basically supporting the, the, the whites in uh, the Cherokee Nation versus people who were, uh, you know, doing their part to make the problem even worse by being unassailable versus the poor guys stuck in the middle who were just trying to figure out some way to survive in the land that they'd lived in since, you know, roughly 1500 or thereabouts. Sounds like a topic for a drama system series pitch. Indeed, indeed. I think that the Trail of Tears would make a dandy uh, drama system thing for people who, I, I guess, could sort of take it the step beyond, you know, Cherokee's good, Georgia bad, which certainly as a first order approximation is not necessarily untrue, but I think it's misleading about the larger complexity of what's going on. Well, if you centered it all on the on one family of Cherokees who were divided internally as to what camps they belonged to, there that would be your uh, uh, basic concept, and the uh, the Georgians could come in and be good or bad as the players determined. Yeah, I, th I think that um, it, it it has a lot of strong possibilities. Uh, also, of course, you can look at something like this as a model for any number of. Um, uh, exiles and, and the classic example I think that they did it on Star Trek is you've got guys who are settled on some planet and they have to be moved because the treaty has given the planet to the to the other guys and you know there's <laughs> there's there's no way around it or you know in maybe they have a uranium strike on their land and the aliens are moving in uh, well throughout history the most intractable conflicts are about who gets to live where mm -hmm. well uh, time incorporated would uh, like to congratulate you for uh, your program of uh, smallpox eradication in the 1720s. And the final question is, what does this do to cornflakes in this timeline? Uh, I think that um, if you assume that a additional cause for uh, white radical Republicans to take up is probably uh, good for uh, vegetarianism and abstinence and being all crazy and having excessive uh, uh, energy to spend uh, policing people's behavior... Cornflakes probably do even better in this timeline. Well, there you go. That's what we in the uh, podcasting business call up a callback. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pellegrine Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Read our nutrition labels at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.